quick recap where we've been is in a sermon series called Grow Where You're Planted. Um, Two weeks ago we looked at that and saw to be grow where we're planted, to be growing where we are planted by gathering for enjoyable worship. And then last week about growing where you're planted in fruitfulness and within authentic community in relationships together. And today we'll look at part three, the final part of grow where you're planted, um, about being sent out on God's mission. You might think that's because, well, we're sending out new creation today, and in fact it is, but it is not only directed at new creation. It is for everyone. Everyone should grow where you are planted by going out with public faith on God's mission. Maybe I can inspire you to this. Um, so I brought, I brought some posters to show you. Um, I think here's the first one. Famous recruiting posters. I want you for the U.S. Army, right? This is a famous recruiting poster. Another famous recruiting poster, uh, Rosie the Riveter, right? So uh, d- during the, the Great War, right, needing women to work and, and sustain factories and everything, we need you, right? Um, and then the other great recruiting poster is Dwight Schrute. I'm ready to face any challenges that might be foolish enough to face me. Okay, so maybe that's not such a great recruiting poster. All of those things are trying to call people to action. Dwight has an air of uber confidence that's probably not so uh, good. When it comes to doing God's work and his mission, you may think, I I just don't want to go. I don't don't know that I have interest in doing that. You may think, "Ah, I'm pretty sure you got the wrong person. Like, I can't do this. I'm too afraid of what others will think of me. It's like mission impossible. I don't know if I have what it takes to do it. And if that's you, I want you to understand something, and that is this, that you are, in fact, in very good company. Because Moses... Moses of the Bible, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, that Moses said, when God said, hey, you need to go, he's like, yeah, I can't do it. I can't do it. You, got, you picked the wrong guy. I don't even speak well. You should have picked Aaron, my brother. I can't do it. Made all kinds of excuses. Jonah. Jonah didn't want to do it. He ran away trying to go the other way, and God said, no, you're, you're, I need you to do this. You're going to do this. Right? And Isaiah has his own doubts and excuses and concerns as well. But what is critical to each of those things is that their power, their encouragement, comes not from within. It comes from somewhere outside of them, someone outside of them. And so as we read this text today from Isaiah 6, I want you to envision this as a recruitment poster. Follow along with me as we read God's Word. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, and each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in their land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will bless the reading and now the preaching of your word. Help us to listen to it, to be shaped by it, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So who will go? Here am I, send me, is Isaiah's cry. What I'm proposing to you today is that we are to grow, you and I are to grow where we are planted by going out with public faith in God's mission. Who will go? I'm going to give you three points so you know where we're going. Who will go? The first is the ones who are in awe of a holy God. Second, those who are aware of their sin. And third, those who are willing to be ambassadors. Those are three points. That's where we're headed. Let's talk about it a little bit. First, going in awe of God. Three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Is exclaimed the holiness of God. The holiness of God means that he is utterly unique, set apart in all of his attributes from the rest of creation. He is holy. He is different. He is unique in all of his attributes. So God is holy. We're only going to look at a couple of those attributes today because there's a lot of them. But one of the things that jumps out here is he is holy sovereign. That is, he is the ruler over all things. The angels are praising the Lord, and at the sound of their voices, the foundation shakes. You might be thinking of like the Hokies at a kickoff, right before kickoff with Enter Sandman, and they're all jumping, and it's loud, and causes Richter scales to go off, right? These angels are not jumping. They're proclaiming how holy God is, and it says the foundation shakes. The very foundation shakes. But not only is it communicating the greatness of God in that, Isaiah sees him envisioned, he says, in the temple, and the train of his robe fills the temple, and he says in verse 5, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, the King, the sovereign one, the ruler. He is holy, he is different, he is unique. Isaiah knows this, I'm not going to take time to explain this, but but there's a passage in which King Uzziah, who at the beginning of this we're told has died, where King Uzziah goes into the temple to try to do something he is not allowed to do because he is not a priest. 
Only the priest could go do it. And Isaiah warns them and says, you cannot do that. And what must be before Isaiah's eyes here is that he's got the Lord God, the one who is both priest and king, reigning over all things in the temple and beyond the temple. The vision blows his mind. The sovereign king is the righteous holy one, not just the ruler. So he is holy and righteous. He is holy sovereign. And he is holy merciful. Let's put verses 6 and 7 on the screen for me if you would. Remember what happens here. Isaiah is overcome and it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. That would be the altar of incense in the temple where they make sacrifice. Okay? And so with it, it touches his mouth. And the angel says, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt's taken away and your sin is atoned for. The Lord, the King, is also holy, merciful. Delighting to forgive people of their sin. So that when Isaiah is overcome, he he sends to him from the altar. He sends to him the one who redeems, forgives, brings great glory to God. God delights. He delights to show people mercy. Truly he does. So we have to go in awe of a holy God. But secondly, we need to go with an awareness of sin. Isaiah goes... And he has great awareness of the people's sins. He writes about it a lot through the book. We read about it in our confession, Isaiah chapter 5, the woes, right? Woe is to say that I am cursed, I am ruined, I'm undone. It's like this undoing, this destruction of things. And he's saying everything's coming apart. It's not the way it's supposed to be. That's what the woe is meaning. And so he lists all these woes that bring destruction to life. In verse 8, There's one. We could put that on there, right? The woe to those who build house to house and join field to field until there's no space. Why is that a problem? Because in the Old Testament, they were not to do that. Every person who was part of God's kingdom of Israel, every person had their own property and rights to that so that there would not be poor in the land. Everybody would have ownership of something. They would be able to produce and work and have crops. That's the intent. And Isaiah is saying, you have prevented that because you have made people go in debt to you. You've collected on their debt and you've taken their property and built your house to house and land to land and you have not cared for the poor. You have pushed them out. In today's terms, that would be like amassing generational wealth and at the same time denying opportunity to your neighbor who's indebted to you when you take that property and then don't have any concern for your neighbor who might now be poor. I'm not saying generational wealth is wrong. I'm saying if that is our goal and we don't care about the poor, that's what God is saying to the people of Israel. You have no care for the poor. And his heart goes out to the poor. It's not the way it's supposed to be. The other thing he says, woe to, is in verse 11. It also occurs in 22. But just verse 11, we can put it up there about those who chase drinks. Right? Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night until they're inflamed with much wine. Right? And so those who are, love the great parties, but, that goes on to say after that, but they have no honor for me. They don't care about me and my words. They don't obey me. They don't honor me with their lips or with their life. They basically have the attitude of, man, hasn't God been great to us as a place? Like, look at all these blessings we have. Let's go celebrate and have a party. But then they have no regard for God in the way they live. 
They live extravagantly. They don't give generously. They're not helping the poor. They're not caring about justice. They're not showing mercy. I mean, another way we can think about it too is if, if, you're, if you're running to the bottom of the bottle to drown out your pain and your problems, you're not turning to God. You're turning to that bottle, to that drink, to that aid, to that pill, whatever that might be. If you can't stop doing that, you have a problem. If you can't stop for a month, go, okay, I'm just going to quit for a month. You've got a problem. If it affects your relationships, get help. Don't wait. See a pastor. See me. See Brian. Go see a counselor. Go to AA that meets in our building on Monday and Thursday nights at 6 o'clock. Get help because it is destructive and it will ruin your relationships and it will keep you from leaning into the Lord. Another one in verse 18. Woe. There's a lot of these woes, by the way. We're barely into them. Buckle up. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as carts, uh, as with cart ropes, right? And so what's being said here is those who are willfully in in sin and pulling others along. Let's just keep going in our sin. This is great. We enjoy this. This is fun. Let's keep doing this with with no regard for consequences. We could say it's the idea of thinking, well, you said God's merciful. No matter what, he's going to forgive me. So I'm just going to keep doing what I want to do. Grace is amazing. It is freely given. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. It's free. But it is not cheap. Because it cost God the life of his son. And so to have an attitude to say that it doesn't matter what I do because God's going to forgive me is to dishonor the cost it is to God. It's to disgrace his son who said, I will come and give my life for you. We should not have a careless attitude towards sin. Now, I'm not telling you go and be perfect because you don't have the ability to do that. What I am telling you is don't have a careless attitude towards sin. Recognize it's serious. God says we shouldn't do that. And it cost him his son to redeem people like me and you. Verse 20, woe. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. I don't even know if I need to explain this one. I feel like this is rampant in our society. We just relabel everything and pass it off as something else that's okay. And say, yeah, it's good. Being wise in your own eyes, it goes on and says, to those who are wise in their own eyes, which is echoing back, I think, this phrase that occurs throughout the Old Testament that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve are first tempted after God makes mankind. And they say, we're going to choose for ourselves what is right and wrong. And they choose for themselves to redefine what is right and wrong. God said, don't eat from this tree. We say, it's okay. They were wise in their own eyes. They got to decide what was right and wrong. And then look what happens from there. Verse 23. This is the last woe. So... Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. That's plain, it's straightforward, it is what it is. 
spoken to Israel, but all these things have application to us today. We could consider our justice system in this. I think our justice system is a really good justice system. I'm really glad I live in this country with this justice system. I don't want to live anywhere else in another justice system. But we all know there's problems. There can be bad actors or bad aspects of it that could need change or reform in different ways. It's not bad for us to ask those questions because certainly what we do want to do is what Isaiah is saying is that that we don't want the innocent and the oppressed mistreated to be unjustly treated by the law. Nor do we want the guilty to go away innocent. They need to actually face justice. That's what he's saying. Like, the guilty ought to face justice. The innocent should not be oppressed and mistreated because they don't have means. They need to be treated fairly. All these woes that Isaiah lists are huge, serious societal problems. And we, as followers of Jesus, need to be aware of those kinds of problems. We need to work to attempt to redeem and to restore life the way God intends it to be. That's living with a public faith to do what is good for our society. Isaiah 61, towards the end of his book, in verses 3 and 4, I think we have that slide as well, if you can put that on the screen. He's talking about this vision of what's going to happen when the Messiah comes, the Savior, and then it transitions to what the people will be like. And he says they... He will provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Because, right, he's prophesied this whole time, hard times are coming. But he's saying they're not forever. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, restore the places devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Part of the work of going about living with a public faith is working to renew, restore, and rebuild the things that are broken and make them right and better for the common good of society. You should be involved with that. That's what it looks like to have a public faith to go out and to do what is good and right. We try to do that in our church in different ways. We, we support and we, we serve with real life, jobs for life, program training within the real life, recovering from everyday addictive lifestyles program that Dr. Scarborough runs in the city that is helping people who have been incarcerated transition into society, which is really hard to do. If you don't have an identification and you don't have an address and you don't have a job and you may have addiction issues, what do you do? You help and you retrain and you renew and you restore. Or the STEP program, Strategies to Elevate People, and the Victory Reading program, ways that we're helping there, trying to serve alongside of these ministries in our city that are doing good things. Those are some examples of that, and there's lots of others you could think of. We have a counseling center that uses the, the building here because we believe that is important to help people restore and renew in their mental health when life delivers crushing blows. All these sins of society are things that to be planted for the display of a splendor means we need to speak to those things. And even as we talk about all those sins of society out there, the thing that you need to be as highly aware of is the sin in here. Your sin. The sin in your own heart, in your own self. 
Let's look at verse 5 again. Remember, chapter 5 is all the woes that Isaiah says. But in verse 5 of chapter 6, when he's seeing the recruiting poster before him, he says, Woe to me! I am ruined! I'm the one who's unclean, and I live among a people who are unclean. What am I to do? And that's when God takes the coal from the altar and shows his mercy to him. I mean, what is he supposed to do? He's actually supposed to go speak as a prophet God's word to the people. But he is cleansed as his lips are cleansed. He says, I'm supposed to speak? I have unclean lips. Who am I to speak for the Holy One, the King? I mean, who knows? Maybe he gossips all the time or slanders. Maybe he's cursed God. Maybe he's said bad things. We don't know. It doesn't say that. He just says his lips are not clean. And yet he's called to go speak for the one who is pure and right. And he is cleansed. There are two kinds of sinners. Two kinds of sinners in this world. There are those who deny it and those who admit it. That's it. We're all sinners. You either own it or you don't. I'm a sinner. I'm not going to tell you all my sins right now. You probably run out the door and leave, never to come back. But I want you to know that your pastors are sinners. There's no big thing I'm going to dump. There's no big... You're not going to see me in the news. That's not what I'm saying. Don't worry about that. It's not like preparing you. Oh, no. No, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying I'm a sinner, and you are too. And this church is filled with sinners. People who struggle with pride, with greed, with lying, with pornography, with stealing, with adultery, with gossip, with lacking compassion for the poor, with not honoring Sabbath arrest, with not honoring their parents, with using their lips to assassinate other people and destroy their character and slander them. I mean, on and on and on. All those things were people, were sinners, sinners in recovery, sinners in need of a Savior. Welcome. Because the only reason we gather here is because that's who we are. We're sinners. The, the, the single qualification for you to walk through those doors is to say, man, I'm a sinner, and I need Jesus. So welcome. Because your identity is not left in that you are a sinner, though in fact you are. Your identity is made new. You are given, as in baptism, the name of another, the name of Jesus, who says, no, no, I have now covered you, cleansed you, washed you of your sin, and now your identity is found in me. We are sinners who are reclaimed and saved by God's grace. We're made new. Why is it hard for us to admit our sin, to confess that? I mean, sometimes it's because we like our sin and we don't want to change. Sometimes it's probably because we feel like God can't really forgive me. You don't know my sin and how far and deep it goes. I can tell you the Bible says God's love is bigger than that whatever it is. I'm reminded of an Andrew Peterson song, musical artist, actually author too, but um, 
he has a song, he says this, about wondering if God's love could really cover a sin. He says, it's the fear that I'll fall one too many times. It's the fear that his love is no better than mine. But he tells me that just as I am, just as I was, just as I will be, he loves me. He loves me, he does. He showed me the day that he shed his own blood. He loves me. Oh, he loves me, he does. You're loved. So you need an awareness of your sin. Knowledge of the awe, the holiness of God. And then you can be an ambassador for God. Going as an ambassador, Isaiah does here, King Uzziah dies after a 52-year reign. Queen Elizabeth just died after a longer reign than that, right? But Uzziah reigned for 52 years and then died. And it's on the heels of that that Isaiah is called to go be a prophet, a spokesperson for God. During Uzziah, the king's reign, they had peace and they had prosperity. But nations were saber-rattling. Conflicts were about. And when Uzziah dies, and God tells Isaiah to go and say, danger's coming because you have walked away from me, and you should learn from it and turn your hearts back to me, that's where Isaiah has to go. In the midst of that instability, in the midst of the crises that are to come, Isaiah is called to go out and proclaim God's holiness and his mercy. Ambassadors go, right? Here's the thing about ambassadors. They don't have any guarantee of the outcome. They go to represent one, but there's no guarantee of the outcome. Verses 9 and 10 make this clear. I need to talk about this briefly because it probably hit you funny and struck you. He says, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of the people callous, their ears dull, and close their eyes. You think, what is going on? Why is that message going out? What is being said? God is telling his prophet, his spokesperson, to go out and to preach. But to preach in such a way that, it will, that people who reject his message will understand. If you reject my message, the message of God, then it has a hardening effect on you. You will become calloused in your heart. Your eyes will, will be covered over. You won't see God and you will run from him. And if you continue in that, in those woes of chapter 5, it will lead to, to your destruction. So his message is a warning. Stop. Don't continue in this because this is what will happen. But it's also a prophecy of what they're going to do because their hearts are, are, their hearts are hard and they're turning from God. I awoke from my sleep on August 3rd at 3 a.m. with my mind going like 100 miles an hour. Less than two weeks earlier, I had been in Belize on our church mission trip, and one of the pastors told us that if you wake up at 3 a.m., pay attention because that's when God likes to talk to you. So I'm like, this is weird. It's 3 (laughs) o'clock. Okay, God, what are you saying? The phrase that kept coming to my mind over and over and over again for what seemed like 15 minutes or 30 minutes, I don't know how long it was. So I was laying in bed. I finally got up because I couldn't sleep was this. They are ever hearing but never understanding. They are ever hearing but never understanding. They are ever hearing but never understanding. I felt like God was reminding me that my job is to keep preaching and see what God does with it. Some of you are understanding. That's great. I want you to be understanding. I'm not sure who that word is for. 
But if you've been hearing the word of God and refusing to believe it or obey it, then be warned. Don't be one who is ever hearing and never understanding. Turn to Jesus. Believe in him. Tim Keller wrote, Tim Keller's an author, pastor in New York City. He's retired as a pastor now, but still writes. Um, pastor of Redeem- he was pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. He writes widely um, and, and has been big in church planting and written best-selling books. He, he wrote an article, he's written an article, a four-part series on kind of seeing the future of Christianity in the U.S. and where it's headed. I want to read to you part of what he wrote. He says, the best Christian movements are those that arise out of spiritual awakenings. In another part, he talks about those spiritual awakenings always include a rediscovery of the gospel and conviction of sin. But he goes on here, he says, um, those spiritual awakings, and that is necessary today as ever. One of the features of our time is that churches are dividing over politics because people are finding themselves far more passionate and moved by political and social issues than they are by the truths of our faith and especially the centrality of the gospel of Christ. They become most exercised and emotional, not in worship, but over flashpoint political and cultural issues. That is a sign of spiritual vacuum in Christians' lives and emptiness. And it's one of his concerns for the church in the United States as it's shrinking. If you did not know that, it's shrinking. That's hard to hear, hard to read. But we have to ask ourselves, could it be true? What gets me most excited? Do I get most upset or excited about what I hope for and what will change in in laws and politics? Or do I get most excited over the glory of the holy God who reigns from above and his spirit is working in a move in different ways in different places? It's not that we shouldn't care about politics. We do, I mean, chapter 5 of Isaiah was about political kinds of things, about how people in the land need to be treated fairly. But if that's the highest thing for you that gets you most excited and exercised, you might have an idol in your life is what he's saying. You might love that more than you love God. And that's hard to hear, hard for us to hear. So ambassadors do go. They go out not knowing the outcome. But they go out primarily because of the one they serve, the one they represent. And this is the final thing I'm going to say to you, and this is what's critical. Isaiah delivers a difficult message because, it's difficult, no doubt, but he delivers it because he is captivated by the one he represents, by the one who sent him, the King, the Lord Almighty, whose train fills the temple, the foundations shake in his presence. He is captivated by him. The prophecy that Isaiah gives is for Israel and it was fulfilled, but it still serves as a warning for us to not have hard hearts, to not have dull ears and closed eyes. But God is good. But God is wholly merciful. But God does not give up on his people. Because God did not give up on the people of Israel, and he doesn't give up on you and I. He promised, in verse 13, the last verse of that chapter, a remnant. Like a stump 
left in the land after everything had been cut down from which a shoot would rise up to redeem and restore. And John, the disciple of Jesus, tells us something interesting about Isaiah's recruitment poster. It's in his gospel in chapter 12, verse 41. And I want you to see what he says, specifically quoting Isaiah 6, verse 10. He says, Isaiah said this, verse 10, because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Isaiah in his vision, what John, the disciple of Jesus, is telling us, is Isaiah's vision was not just of the king of the universe, the king who is enthroned and his robe fills the train of the temple, the great king priest. What he saw is Jesus. It was Jesus' glory that he is beholding. It is Jesus who is the one who is coming to redeem, to renew and to restore and to rise up a people that will be a planting like oaks of righteousness for the display of his splendor. So new creation, as you go out, you remember that. In spring run, as you are right here, you remember that. A planting for the display of his splendor. You and I go out as ambassadors, not because we're afraid of God, but because we are captivated in awe of God, who is good, merciful, kind, and loves to seek and save the lost. On this day, it is a day in which we say never forget. We should never forget that day. September 11th. We remember it. And many on that day responded to the call to say, I'll go. And what God is saying to you is, in the midst of destruction in the world, I'm calling you. Who will go and take the good news of the gospel to people? Who will go for us? The only rational response of someone captivated by the glory and the goodness of, and grace of God who has been cleansed of their sin is to say, here am I, send me. When the gospel is not proclaimed, God is robbed of his glory. If your life does not display the splendor of God, change your life. Who will go? Everyone who is a follower of Jesus. The only question is where. It might be in Chester. It might be in Farmville. It might be in Amelia. It might be overseas. It might be right here in the neighborhood in which you are planted. But God has planted you where you are. Will you grow where you're planted? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be a people as ambassadors of you who are captivated by your awe and in awe of you, who are aware of our sin but are willing to go out to live with public faith, caring about people, to live speaking of the gospel and telling of the good news that you bring. Lord, we're all in different places on that. Some like Jonah, some like Moses, some like Isaiah, just some like Andrew or John or Betty or whoever else is out there, Lord, but use us and our gifts to go with public faith on your mission, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.